0: hppodcraft.com
1: Hi folks, and welcome to our coverage of I Am Legend. Just a
2: quick note before the show starts, I made a little boo-boo on this one and I recorded with the wrong microphone. So my audio is a little like the societal change in the theme of this book. Not entirely bad, not entirely good, just different.
1: There is nothing wrong with your listening system, there is just something wrong with Chad.
2: But if I could take the opportunity to make something right, in this episode we talk about the music mentioned in the book, all real classical music, except for one piece, The Year of the Plague by Roger Lay. When I put together the playlist from the book, I actually scoured the internet for this thing, discovered that it was entirely fictional until now. What? As penance for my mistake with the microphone, I have recorded The Year of the Plague. You know what they say, when life hands you Draculas, you make (laughs) Draculaid. That's what I've done. And I hope you guys will enjoy the episode. Stay tuned for the song at the end of the show.
0: On those cloudy days, Robert Neville was never sure when sunset came, and sometimes they were in the streets before he could get back. He walked around the house in the dull gray of afternoon, a cigarette dangling from the corner of his mouth, trailing thread-like smoke over his shoulder. He checked each window to see if any of the boards had been loosened, After violent attacks, the planks were often split or partially pried off, and he had to replace them completely, a job he hated. Today, only one plank was loose. Isn't that amazing? He thought. As he pushed open the front door, he looked at the distorted reflection of himself in the cracked mirror he'd fastened to the door a month ago. In a few days, jagged pieces of the silver-backed glass would start to fall off. Let them fall, he thought. It was the last damned mirror he'd put there. It wasn't worth it. He'd put garlic there instead. Garlic always worked.
1: Those were the excerpts from chapter one of the vampire classic, I am a legend by Richard Matheson. Woo. That was dramatic, Chris. Yeah. Well, I feel dramatic, man. I love this book so much. I got to give it some gravitas.
2: (laughs) Well, you certainly did. And we're going to be giving it a lot of gravitas here on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast, also known and this summer to be exclusively renamed Strange Studies of Strange Stories. I'm Chad Fife.
1: And I'm Chris Leicke. We're here at HPPodcraft.com and Patreon. This is our free show of the month. So if you want to take this ride through the whole novel all month, please consider (laughs) subscribing.
2: Because folks, you know what time it is. (laughs) March is full
1: Draculas!
2: Uh Our reader this month will be Eric Peabody, a voiceover artist and the man behind Viking Guitar Productions, Mixing and mastering your music and custom audio solutions for your podcast and audiobook needs, he's the best.
1: Oh, God, yes, he's so good.
2: (laughs) Man, you are bringing the gravitas so
1: hard. I'm trying, I'm really trying. Also
2: in honor of Marches for Draculas, our pals at Cryptocurium are re-rolling out their Nosferatu figurine. I love. I haven't got my hands on it yet, but I've got one on order. They've also got a ton of excellent Lovecraft offerings over there. I have two of their Cthulhu idols on the desk.
1: I know you have one as well. I do. I'm looking right at it. I got
2: a smaller one that's a little more green. It's really awesome. It's good stuff. We'll link out to all that in the show notes.
1: It haunts me. (laughs) This is the first time we've covered (laughs) Richard Burton Matheson on the show, though we have a lot of love for him this whole time. There's, yeah. I've read this book many years ago before we started the podcast. And you are a big fan of his novel, Hell House.
2: Yeah, I love it. I didn't even realize how big of a fan of his I was until I was reading your notes Mm -hmm. for this episode. Because he's done so much great stuff, you kind of take him for granted.
1: You do. Now, he was born in 1926 in Allendale, New Jersey, to Norwegian immigrant parents, though he was raised by his mother in Brooklyn. He served in the Army in Europe during World War II, and after the war, he attended the Missouri School of Journalism, and afterwards moved to California in 1949. His first novel was Hunger and Thirst, which didn't get published until 2010. So, you know... It took a while to make it out. yeah. But his first published story was Born of Man and Woman, which came out in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in 1950. It was about a giant monstrous child chained in the cellar by his parents.
2: <laughs> I, that's so crazy. I was reading your notes here and I immediately had to go look at his biography to find out if he had children yet when he wrote that. You know, sort of like oh right, yeah. Lynch's eraser head was kind uh, of I, a reaction to having his own kids. So uh-huh. he, he did not have children at that point. No. So that's a good. In 1952, Matheson married Ruth Ann Woodson, Mm -hmm. whom he met in California. They had four children, Bettina Mayberry, Richard Christian, Christopher David, and Allie Marie Matheson. Mm -hmm. Richard, Chris, and Allie became writers of fiction and screenplays themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because you and I did a recent AMA in which nepotism came up during the show, (laughs) I was saying, you know, it's dumb to say someone's playing the race card or the gender card or whatever, because from my perspective, I see people playing the nepotism card like it's 52 pickup, you know, (laughs) and then if they're doing that, Yes. You should use what you got. But it probably sounded a little bit like I was against people using the nepotism card, but I'm actually not. It's no. you know, I'm for everybody playing all their cards, whatever they may be. Lifetimes are unfortunately very short, and when yeah. people go into the family business, I think that helps the craft and if it's entertainment, it's often to our benefit. Mm-hmm. Forget about actors and actresses. Just think about John Ramita Jr. or oh. Richard Matheson's children, whom I just mentioned are all really good at what they do. In fact, Richard Christian Matheson wrote the script for the Damned Thing, when it was adapted for Masters of Horror. All We've covered right. that story. Mm-hmm. And I mention it, of course, because my poster Jesus Heist is in that episode. Yes. You see how I started this deep and then ended shallow?
1: Well done. A master stroke. <laughs> how is it about me? Matheson Sr. was in the Southern California Sorcerers in the 1950s and 60s, which was a group of writers that included Ray Bradbury, Charles Beaumont, and a few others. He wrote a lot of short stories over that time into the 70s. When you wrote that in your notes, you
2: just said, the Southern California Sorcerers have moved on. So I was like, what? <laughs> Who is this organization of wizards? I-, I know about the science fiction society that Ray Bradbury was a part of in LA, but I actually To my knowledge, hadn't heard of this before.
1: No, I haven't heard of it until we started doing research on this.
2: The group's start can be traced all the way back to 1946, when an overly enthusiastic and creative teenager ran into one of his favorite authors at a local bookstore. The two struck up a conversation and a friendship was born. The teenager was Charles Beaumont, and the author was Ray Bradbury. Mm -hmm. I'm getting this info from 32 Days of Halloween, A Brief History of the Southern California Sorcerers by Justin Hamelin on the uh, Mangled Matters blog. And this group, you said some others, it included Matheson, Robert Block, uh, Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, and Rod Serling, among others. There's actually a spicy angle on this. The authors would, (laughs) I'm getting this from the blog. The authors would discuss their latest projects, read excerpts from their finished works, and encourage one another to venture out into the market to sell their books. The group members often collaborated with one another and weren't very discriminatory where they met. One of my favorite quotes about the group is from founding member George Clayton Johnson. Uh, and that name sounded familiar to me. He was, uh, he's one of the co-writers of Logan's Run. Wow. So lots of amazing stuff in this group. George Clayton Johnson stated that the group would go to strip joints to watch the stripper strip and be embarrassed to be there, trying to act like college kids. <laughs> we'd go to nice restaurants or we'd end up somewhere along the beach. It yeah. hardly mattered. Uh, the fellas just wanted to write. In hindsight, more than a few have argued that without this support group, some of the men involved may not have gone on to achieve the successes they did.
1: Oh, wow. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Now, Matheson's short story, The Duel, was adapted as a TV movie by Steven Spielberg, and it was mm-hmm. it was his directorial debut. Folks mentioned that
2: movie in that respect. It was his first movie or his directorial debut. Almost like it's a novelty, but I love that
1: movie. It's great. And his first novel was published in 1953, Someone is Bleeding. Other novels he wrote, The Shrinking Man in 1956, which was adapted, of course, into the movie. The following year, The Incredible Shrinking Man. And of course, this book, I Am Legend, came out in 1954. It was adapted thrice. <laughs> First, The Last Man on Earth with Fitz and Price in 1964. The Omega Man in 1971 with Charlton Heston. And I Am Legend with Will Smith in 2007.
2: I remember seeing that one and being dumbly excited about the Superman and Batman poster. <laughs> or billboard. You remember that? So you've seen that one because I think we saw it together. Yes, I saw that one and I saw
1: The Omega Man. I've seen The Omega Man a few times. Mm -hmm. I have never seen The Last Man on Earth. And maybe in the course of us covering this, I will try and watch it before our, our next recording. As I read this book, I understand why it's been adapted so many times. It would make an awesome low-budget indie movie. It's nothing really insane happens that you would need to use a big cast or many locations. There's mm-hmm. And it's just really compelling, and I can see why it was adapted. I wish one of those movies adapted it correctly, but...
2: <laughs> and to your point, you could do it on a really low budget, but it's scalable too, right? Because of, of the course. things that it mentions where you can do it on a very high budget, and that's mm-hmm. what the Will Smith movie is. And I think the reason that was disappointment was because it was so good. The, yeah. the decisions they made were really cool in that movie. Yeah. It just ended on a bad place. Although I do think there was some testing issues. And you, there was. You know, there's another ending of that. Yeah.
1: There was the ending that's much more close to the book, but right. people didn't like it. So they obviously it's a big <laughs> multi-million dollar film and yeah. people got to like a Will Smith movie. So they, do. they changed the end and kind of took away what I think makes this story amazing.
2: But I think the other option is available.
1: Oh, is it? I think so back to Matheson. He wrote plenty of screenplays. Uh, he wrote some teleplays for Have Gun, Will Travel and The Lawman, but he wrote for The Twilight Zone, which, mm-hmm. of course, is huge. And he wrote Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, starring William Shatner.
2: That's such a good episode. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the adaptation with Luke Gow in the movie, right? Was oh, it yeah. Luke something? Yeah. yeah Fantastic. A... He also was the screenwriter of Jaws 3D, my brother. <laughs> a hot August day <laughs> in air-conditioned theater. I'm eight years old. Manimal is in the movie. Uh huh, yeah. Somehow I am intellectually at the perfect place to enjoy this film. Thank you, Richard Matheson. I know that people deride that one, but for an eight year old in the summer of '83, it was a time of my life. Yeah. That, seeing Jaws 3D is one of the greatest movie experiences I've ever had.
1: <laughs> Not only does it have Simon McCorkendale in there, it has uh, some other. Little-known actors, Leah Thompson.
2: Leah Thompson's in there. You got you got Quaid, fella.
1: Dennis Quaid. Yeah. You remember him? Mm-hmm. The
2: jaws come out into the audience.
1: <laughs> they sure do. Masterpiece. Oh, I love it. Matheson also wrote screenplays of a few Roger Corman movies, including The House of Usher, The Pit and the Pendulum, and The Raven. He also wrote the classic Star Trek episode, The Enemy Within. That's where Kirk got split into two people. One was his aggressive, angry, emotional side, and the other was his very passive, kind side and how neither of the two sides worked independently, but they needed to be together. Really good episode. Goosebumps. In 1973, he wrote the teleplay for The Night Stalker yeah the the movie pilot for kolchak the night stalker and he also wrote the horrifying slash hilarious segment from trilogy of terror the prey
2: i mean just improved my life in a lot of ways because <laughs> that stuff just makes me laugh you can throw in that little goon run around with this, <laughs> so funny you know the night stalker actually wasn't a pilot though it was a tv movie and then it did so well that they made it into a series yeah In a couple of movies, but it garnered the highest ratings of any TV film at that time in 1973, which... Pretty cool. It's funny. We think now that TV movies were considered sort of lower tier programming, but that's doing a 50% share of the television viewing audience in 1973. Those are like MCU numbers. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. More people saw The Night Stalker that he did probably anything that came out at the movie theater. Yeah. So he had huge
1: success. There. Now in the 1980s, he also wrote a bunch of episodes of Amazing Stories, and in the 90s, two more of his novels were made into movies. What Dreams May Come and A Stir of Echoes. He received the World Fantasy Award for Lifetime Achievement 1984, the Bram Stoker Award for Lifetime Achievement 1991. He died days before receiving his Visionary Saturn Award on June 23rd,
2: 2013. Sucks when anybody dies, but that's a hell of an exit. Yeah. Uh, Steven Spielberg had this to say about him. Richard Matheson's ironic and iconic imagination created seminal science fiction stories and gave me my first break when he wrote the short story and screenplay for Duel. His Twilight Zones were among my favorites, and he recently worked with us on Real Steel. For me, he is in the same category as Bradbury and Asimov. Mm -hmm. Spielberg has such a meticulous public persona, and then when he breaks into this podcast, he's so different, (laughs) doing his bong rips and talking about (laughs) boondock saints and...
1: Yeah, I mean, we really got to make sure that he doesn't get on the show again.
2: I actually loved Real Steel. I don't. I didn't know he was involved in that at all. But he wrote the short story Steel that that movie's based on. You've seen what, that, haven't you?
1: What is Real Steel?
2: It's Hugh Jackman and the big boxing robot.
1: Oh, right, right. No, I never saw it.
2: It's it's worth seeing. It? It's a great movie. When I saw the trailer, I laughed at it. Yeah, me too. I, I thought it looked so stupid, and then. I caught it in a hotel or something that was riveted.
1: Well, Roger Corman had this to say about him. He said, Richard Matheson was a close friend and the best screenwriter I ever worked with. I always shot his first draft. I will miss him.
2: A lot of people reading that went, don't you shoot everybody's first draft? (laughs) Well, whatever. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Corman.
1: This novel, I Am Legend, was first published, as I said, in 1954 and was really the influence behind the whole modern post-apocalyptic zombie setting. George Romero himself even said this.
2: Yeah, and we we talked also on that recent AMA a bit about how John Carter of Mars by Burroughs spawned all of the major media properties. So that when the movie finally came out, it felt a little flat, maybe because the tropes it invented had been played out by its imitators. And so I've never read this book before. I was worried about that going into it. Yeah, I have to say it felt pretty modern. And actually, obviously, there's things going on right now that really you know with the pandemic that. Uh, play into it being trapped inside and whatnot but i actually it also didn't spend a lot of times with the tropes i anticipated the downfall of society and no you know things that uh, zombie and survival movies kind of fetishize
1: so let's get into it it begins in january 1976 so it's set in the future jaws
2: 3d is still seven years out it's a sad time in the real world as well
1: you know <laughs> Now, as we heard at the top, our protagonist, Robert Neville, doesn't go far from his home on cloudy days because he's been caught out after sunset. And that's not a good thing. The book eases you into the setting and the situation. It gives you little bits. It doesn't flat out say that there are Draculas all over the story, <laughs> at least not yet.
2: Yeah, just the garlic and the mirrors. Hints. You're getting the reader in the mindset where Draculas are just old hat, though, because they are to him. Mm-hmm. So, of course, he wouldn't be explicit about it. It's kind of like how Draculas are already old hat to our listeners after the last couple of months. He's in that same situation.
1: <laughs> he sure is. So during the day, he has to check on his house to repair any damage that might have been done in the night. He checks on his water tank in the hot house, which is a greenhouse that is controlled temperature wise. He explains how he put mirrors on the outside of his house, but they never seem to have any effect. The garlic, however, it works. We're
2: catching somebody quite a bit after the apocalypse. Also, to our benefit, in a place where he hasn't figured everything out. So there's mystery still there, but we don't have to do all the front loading for the survival story.
1: It explains how he used to have a cozy bedroom, but now half of his bedroom has been turned into a, a wood shop. Neville also burned down the houses next to him to stop them, them, from jumping onto his roof. And he has lots of household maintenance that he has to do during the day. He's got things like he should be changing the sheets, doing the dishes. But who cares? He doesn't do those things. Because he, yeah. he lives alone.
2: It's got the, it very cleverly is half zombie movie and half last month, man on earth. That last man on earth aspect is in a lot of zombie movies. But it's like the one positive thing about that is that there's a little wish fulfillment and I wish everybody was gone and I could go into their houses and go into the stores and have everything I want. Yeah. And have a picnic in the middle of the freeway. and. Mm-hmm shoot a car off a building or whatever I want to do. So there's a little bit of that, but we get the feeling maybe he got that out of his system where it's just not where his desires lie. However, during the day, he can kind of do anything he wants. At night, it's a siege. The thing that was really clever is, yeah, you could do anything you want during the day, but you kind of just have to work to make the nights livable. So it's a really, that wish fulfillment gets killed pretty quick. Yeah. It's just drudgery.
1: At noon, he goes out to the hot house and he gets some garlic. And he it says he used to hate the smell. It would make him sick. Now, everything in the house smells like garlic, including himself. Mm-hmm. Neville has this generator to power up the place. And it seems to always be on the fritz. It keeps most of his food frozen and a lot of detail on how he preps his food and how he survives. It's very interesting stuff, the way it's written. Yeah. Normally, I would be like, get to the damn vampires. But nope, I am totally intrigued.
2: Yeah, it's not Mountains of Madness style sort of cataloging. No.
1: Now, the attackers used to throw rocks at the house to break windows, but now he's boarded up the place with two-by-fours because he had plywood at one point, but that wasn't doing it. So, unfortunately, his house during the day is very dark because all the windows are boarded up. He would string up garlic cloves and hang them over all the windows, and he would have to do this twice a week to freshen up the garlic.
2: And during the day, he'd make more steaks. That no matter how many he makes, he always needs more in his shop bedroom. The character's a classical music nut, and when he mentions music in the book, it's specific. And I I know that, you know, when I've done a piece of writing and actually called out a piece of music, you kind of hope the reader might throw it on. Yeah. So I made a playlist on Spotify and YouTube of the tracks that are mentioned. I've already shared it on social media. As soon
1: as the light goes and night comes, the vampires come to the house. This day, it's around 625 and he hears this guy, Ben Cortman, shouting, come out, Neville. Nothing's
2: explained yet about that, but Ben Cortman, we can intuit as somebody he knows and that this is a repetitive occurrence.
1: Neville has a drink after his dinner, looks over some of medical books. He has some Schoenberg playing really loudly, but it's not loud enough and he could still hear the vampires out shouting at him.
2: Who wants to hear loud classical music with the din of screaming people over it? That just sounds so awful. Uh, The Schoenberg piece that's mentioned is uh, for Clarke Nacht, In the playlist, I put most of the music chronologically Mm -hmm. with how it's mentioned in the book, but that one I moved up to the top because it really is a perfect score for the book. It's composed for a sextet. It's very spooky, it's emotional. Seemed like a good good place to start. Matheson's taste in music is really good. It's funny because the character's kind of a snob about it, so I'm sure that was coming from the author a
1: little Uh
2: bit. Uh, He's spinning this up on the record player as he hears them, quote, outside, they're murmuring and they're walking about and they're cries. They're snarling and fighting among themselves. Once in a while, a rock or brick thudded off the house, sometimes a dog barked.
1: Now, they've been doing this for five months, but now he doesn't even look at them. He did make a peephole at one point where he could look and see what they were up to. But the women noticed this and they started striking vile postures in order to entice him out. The women posing like lewd puppets in the night on the possibility that he'd see them and come out. is kind of gross and weird, as that is, that they're vampire monsters, it still played on his mind and he still kind of felt compelled to do it because he's lonely.
2: Yeah, you know, it was, it was an interesting degree of honesty about this where he's like, I hey, know it's, it's crude, but I don't, you, you're in such a desperate situation, maybe in the worst moment, you go, you know what? Just for human contact, let's fake it for a minute and then kill me, I don't care. But thankfully, the, the vile motions aren't described in detail, so it's, you can put that scene in your mind in however horrific or uncomfortable a way you, you want mm-hmm. although I wasn't particularly lascivious when I was imagining it because it was also a funny situation you know because some of the vampires would probably be better at this than others. I imagine like <laughs> one vampire is really putting some effort in she's going for subtlety a little um, mystery yeah you know she takes the first part of the night to choose her outfit and then this other vampire keeps running up ripping her pants off jumping up and down let's do sex let's do it you know just spoiling the mood. I, that's the one thing I'd say, but I wish Matheson had explored those two characters I just mentioned more.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because no they're, they're there. They're in the subtext.
2: They're there. They're funny. They're quirky.
1: <laughs> now, when it got bad, when the vampires were outside, he would turn the music up so loud that it would hurt his ears and he would drink a lot. And he hated himself for even considering thinking about the vampire women that were out there. Neville would study medicine but they would make so much noise that he couldn't focus on his work and he could hear Ben Cortman above all of it. And Neville really wanted to stake that guy. (laughs) Yeah. So tomorrow he would soundproof the house. That's what he told himself, but... He often did not do it, but he would every time the night came, he'd go, oh God, I gotta do that tomorrow and yeah. you know, procrastinate with it. But that night in particular, they were really getting to him. As he gets ready for bed, he looks at the cross tattoo that he has on his chest. He thinks about how he was a foolish young man when he got that tattoo, when he was drunk in Panama.
2: So it's just an insight into maybe why he survived.
1: This gets us into chapter two. His alarm gets him up at 5.30 and there's still some vampires milling around. He could hear Ben Cortman still yelling, Come out, Neville! Soon he leaves as well, leaving weaker than when they came, these vampires. Unless they attacked one of their own, they would have some strength, which they often did. And when he goes outside, he sees two dead bodies, both women. And he says, they were always women. They look drained of blood and they look pale and horrific. He takes the bodies, he puts them in a tarp, grabs some wooden stakes and loads up the station wagon. Before he ditches the bodies, he stops at a gas station and siphons off some gas. He checks the oil and everything in the car. He keeps it in good shape. He drives to this huge pit that was dug back in 1975 and was constantly burning and still is. And he throws the bodies in. He hated going to the pit, but he always had bodies to get rid of. And he would think that somewhere in that pit was Kathy.
2: So clearly, this was a a public initiative of some kind to deal with vast numbers of dead
1: mm-hmm.
2: on a scale that nobody has ever seen because we're talking about a burning pit done by the government. For yeah. You know, this is a horrific tragedy that's happening. That's still
1: burning somehow. It's still burning, yeah. So he goes to the shop to get some bottled water, and as he does, he decides to see if the owner is up there above the store. Might as well get started.
0: There were two of them. In the living room... Lying on the couch was a woman about 30 years old, wearing a red housecoat. Her chest rose and fell slowly as she lay there, eyes closed, her hands clasped over her stomach. Robert Neville's hands fumbled on the stake and mallet. It was always hard when they were alive, especially with women, He could feel that senseless demand returning again, tightening his muscles. He forced it down. It was insane. There was no rational argument for it. She made no sound except for a sudden, hoarse intake of breath. As he walked into the bedroom, he could hear a sound like the sound of water running. Well, what else can I do, he asked himself, for he still had to convince himself he was doing the right thing.
1: The second one, they don't describe, but he thinks, why do they always remind me of Kathy? And he wonders why it's only wooden stakes that work, and why the heart? And then he thinks of his father and how he denied the existence of vampires. First use of the word in the book, by the way, when he says Mm -hmm. vampire here to the very end. So when this whole plague was going on, his dad was saying, oh, it's not real. It's not happening. It's not vampires. It's something else. Right. It's cool
2: because that's realistic. You know, if vampires did break out, I mean, how many people would really believe it? And then also, it is the first suggestion that maybe not everybody, that maybe not everybody settled on what this even is, despite the garlic and that and the crosses.
1: When he gets to Sears, he, he says he found five in the basement, one asleep in a freezer, and and another one actually in a coffin. Neville also wonders why garlic affects them as well. The myths aren't quite right. They have reflection in glass. They can't turn into bats or wolves, but there are vampire dogs because he, he hears them out at night and he's seen them.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like it sounds like blah, blah, bark.
1: Um, bla, bla, bark. Yeah, there you go. That's it. So after. <laughs> After his lunch, he went house to house and killed vampires, 47 that afternoon.
2: Gets us into chapter three where Neville is reading the novel Dracula, listening to our show, and Mm -hmm. uh, he hears that quote from Van Helsing. The strength of the vampire is that no one will believe in him, which... We just talked about. Yeah. He's still really bothered by all of this violence, and that day he thinks about the the thirteen children that he had to kill. Mm. Throws the book across the room in anger because it's not helping him, and you can still hear Ben Cortman outside calling to him.
1: Talking about his dad earlier, not believing in vampires, it really mm-hmm. made me think of people, the vaccine, and people, of you know, all the stuff that's going on now. There's so many parallels yeah. to it, unfortunately, that you can see. And you keep connecting to this. As I was reading it, I was like, oh, yeah,
2: geez. Yeah, it's coming up soon. But, you know, when they flash back to early days, boy, did that ring true.
1: Neville considers going out and letting them take him to be one of them, you know, and his suffering. But he still has some hope that there might be others out there. They would be, of course, further than a, dra- a day's drive away because he can only drive so far that he's gonna yeah. make sure he can get back to his house. And he swears that he'll kill them all before he gives in. He feels good about his unlimited supply of cigarettes that he keeps in Kathy's room. And that gets him thinking about Kathy. And then he drinks himself stupid that night.
2: Yeah, Kathy is clearly a daughter. yes. And Virginia being his wife. Mm-hmm.
1: Neville thinks about vampires throughout history. Were they so bad, really? And this is what it says here. Is he worse than the parent who gave to society a neurotic child who became a politician? Is he worse than the manufacturer who set up belated foundations with the money he made by handing bombs and guns to suicidal nationalists? Yeah, to drive
2: by on Tony Stark there.
1: <laughs> and the vampires, all they want is to drink blood. So compared to, you know, these humans, that were out there doing all these horrible things throughout history. These guys just want some blood. Hey, you know,
2: we, that's come up on past marches for Dracula.
1: Why is the vampire so reviled and hated? They must hide or be destroyed, you know, because that's how it is for the vampire. So it, throughout history, they've existed. Maybe these vampires aren't actually so bad. Maybe they're victims and that's mm. why they've been hiding throughout history. But then he dismisses these thoughts, you know, because they're trying to kill him. and he's the last guy on earth. He hears Ben Cortman out there again. The naked women are rubbing themselves and wanting him and wanting his blood.
2: Janet's got a nice torch singer outfit on, but uh uh-oh, look out. Jeanette's doing naked somersaults on the lawn, (laughs) break dancing with her shirt off. God damn it.
1: He slams his fist on his leg to break him out of his frustration. But what kind of life is this? And will it ever end? What's the point of killing Bamps and drinking yourself silly every night? Maybe he should just give up at some point, and maybe it's now.
0: Outside, they heard the bar being lifted, and a howl of anticipation sounded in the night. Spinning, he drove his fists one after the other into the wall, until he'd cracked the plaster and broken his skin. Then he stood there, trembling helplessly, his teeth chattering. After a while, it passed. He put the bar back across the door and went into the bedroom. He sank down on the bed and fell back on the pillow with a groan. His left hand beat once, feebly, on the bedspread. Oh, God, he thought. How long? How long?
2: Well answer that question, we're going to end the episode now.
1: Mm.
2: Uh, that was about as far as we need to go. It's funny when you said, what's the point of killing vamps and drinking yourself silly every night? And I'm sure that at least one person went, I don't know, that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> it's my life, dude. Mm. Killing vamps and drinking myself silly.
1: Yeah, I had, a you know, for years, I had a reoccurring dream. And I think it was because of this book that I was out during the day. I had a dog and a bandolier of steaks and I was out killing vampires. I didn't actually kill vampires in the dream. It was an anxiety dream. The sun was yeah. setting and I was trying to get back home. Oh,
2: this really got in there, huh? Oh,
1: yeah. I kept. Having, I mean, that was a recurring dream for probably years that I had an anxiety dream. And it was this freaking story that did it to me. I'm sure of it.
2: I mentioned uh, Richard Matheson's children earlier. You're going to get a letter from them. You owe them some money for all these dreams. That... <laughs> Wait a minute, huh? Is his intellectual property.
1: Oh, no. You're
2: adapting his book into your dreams. That's not cool, man. You got to pay for that. Yeah, I do. There's so much going on in here. We're going to have lots to talk about. Uh, I, you know, like I said earlier, I think this book is really about in social orders, about how that change is both positive and negative. Mm-hmm. I doubt we'll get into specifics about actual social changes, but I think that that's what you could take away and think yeah. about when you're reading this book. Mm -hmm. Certainly, it's a fertile field for everybody to discuss. Folks who are not subscribers, there's a lively comment section below each show where you can offer up your thoughts, your corrections, try out lewd attempts to get Lackey out of the house. (laughs) It's a good space to do that kind of thing.
1: I want to thank our reader, once again, Eric Peabody.
2: Check him out at Viking Guitar Productions if you have any audio needs. He's your man. And don't forget to grab that Nosferatu figurine from Cryptocurium. Mm -hmm. If you buy a lot of them, you could set them up outside, kind of do your own I Am Legend cosplay. (laughs) Just stay inside and get drunk. You know, that's how I do it. A lot of you are halfway there probably while you're listening right now. We'll be back with more I Am Legend next week. For now, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Leicke. And we're a podcast. We'll talk to you next week.
0: HPPodcraft.com.
3: Uh, we The cat's in the box is both dead and lost.